do you want of me? Get off my world. Get off my world. Get off my world. I'm Pat. And I'm Kelvin. And this is Get Off My World, a podcast about Doctor Who. We're three guys who love the classic Doctor Who series, and in some of our better moments have a few nice things to say about the new series as well. We'll take you through five rounds rapid and get down to what is great and not so great about our favorite show. And as always, we kick things off with Temporal Grace, where we say something nice about the world of Doctor Who. Kelvin? Recently, I was at a local comic book convention, and I purchased a used copy of a book called Behind the Sofa, Celebrity Memories of Doctor Who. And it's basically uh, an oral history of various people who, uh, to be fair, are probably more famous in England than in America, providing little short memories they have of Doctor Who. And it's, okay, the lightest of light reading. (laughs) You know, like, when you have, like, an oral history thing... They, they, they introduce each person who's speaking for each segment, and then, like, a little short descriptor of who they are. Like, blah, 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 star of, you know, whatever TV show. And they have, like, just really hilarious little descriptions here. Like, Tara Newley, actress, writer, singer, was not named after the planet containing a segment of the key to time. <laughs> and uh, what's another one here? Um, Carrie Wilkinson, author of Locked In. Got married in a copycat David Tennant suit, complete with white trainers. Uh, Rufus Hound, comedian and presenter, had a Dalek tattooed on his left bicep in 2007. I just, I'm really entertained by this. But there's one segment in here from Katie Manning, uh, who played Joe Grant. Uh, just a weird little anecdote about what it was like hanging out with John Pertwee. And apparently they were just hanging out, talking about goofy stuff, and what it would be like not to have hands. And so they said, like, well, you would have to paint with your feet. And it's like, what would that be like? And so actually, they literally just sat down, took their shoes off, and started painting with their feet. It was the 70s. Yeah. Like, like, you know, holding paintbrushes in their feet and just trying to paint pictures. That's an odd thing to just sort of do. I don't know. It made John Pertwee seem a lot cooler to me, you know, than he already is, you know, because you got to be pretty up for anything. Just suddenly start painting with your feet. Venusian toe painting. Venusian toe painting. <laughs> you look at that guy, you're like, that's a man who can paint with his feet. <laughs> <laughs> well, by the time this episode airs, the, this news will be extremely out of date or whatever, but I, I did want to go on record as saying I'm really excited about Pearl Mackey as the new companion for season 10. Yeah. We've talked a lot about who we want as companions on the show, and we've joked around like, oh, school children or aliens. And from all account, Bill seems to be another contemporary Earth woman. Uh, but it's important to me that she's a person of color. And uh, the only Martha was the only other um, 
woman of color companion that we've yeah. had on the show so far. Although it, it, the new Who has been much more progressive in terms of colorblind casting than the old. <laughs> we'll talk about this a little bit later. Uh, <laughs> than the old show ever was. But the the few seconds that we saw of her in the promo uh, video, she seems to be very much of the young Rose type, um, hip, slightly confused character. But uh, I do like that she has uh, very obviously black hair, so it's yeah. not uh, it's not Martha who was a person of color, but uh, also a professional person, a, a doctor. Uh, here's a, a a young girl who has an afro and kind of uncontrollable hair that is that doesn't fit in with the normal sort of companion structure or yeah, because most of companions stuff. look like yeah. they could be in a perfume ad. Yeah, and I don't want to make too much of this because I haven't we we haven't seen anything really, but just initial impressions. I'm very I'm well, very just, much very much looking forward to her. Just the little uh, Dalek trailer thing they shot with her. Yeah, I mean just. From that alone, it, it seems like she fits in with the Twelfth Doctor very well. I liked their little interaction. Yeah. And again, it's only a few seconds, so we'll see how it is. Yeah. But I'm extremely optimistic about her for season 10. Speaking of optimism, that's a terrible segue, actually, because I want to talk about all the people who've recently died. Uh, <laughs> I look forward to dying. I've been thinking about all this outpouring uh, for all the musicians and celebrities. We've had just a lot of deaths mm -hmm. this year where people are expressing all this affection and um, interest in their work after they're gone. And that's great, but it got me to thinking, like, wow, I've got to start paying attention to people and appreciating them maybe while they're still alive. Uh, and so, to connect that to Doctor Who, I decided to go back and give the fourth Doctor Big Finish audios another try, because I wasn't mm. too hot on the first couple I heard, but I'm like... Baker's 80 years old. He's still working his butt off doing these audios for us nerds. Uh, I want to go back and give it a listen. And so I dipped into the new series that's currently uh, being released, which is Tom Baker Team Backup with Lala Ward and uh, K-9. Uh, so it is done in the, the very light, rompy season 17 mode. And I listened to like the first half of the stories, and Tom Baker and Lala Ward get just instantly back into that bantering repartee and it is so fun to listen to were they in the same room uh, yeah i was gonna ask right were they physically in the same place apparently so i mean i think they record these in booths but i wasn't to separate them <laughs> because uh, i always, I always got the impression they you know after their brief marriage they didn't want anything to no do with each but other. i think with all this outpouring toward doctor who and his actor's age and you know you mm -hmm. don't hold on to these bitter things apparently they decided to Give it a go. And you don't sense anything other than that same banter. They, they sound older. I mean, Tom Baker is really so good in these audios. He, he reminded me of seeing Bill Murray in the Saturday Night Live anniversary special where he comes back and does Nick the Lounge Singer. And other than being clearly 40 years older, he has the exact same pace, energy, timing, and that reminds me a lot of Tom Baker. There's nothing off about his performance. He sounds 80, but he's just dead on. And my last thing to say about it, they are trying so hard to recapture season 17 that in the second episode of this season, they find an excuse to sideline K-9 where he's not in the adventure. <laughs> Keep in mind, this is an audio. There's no terrain issues. There's no prop malfunctions. They... <laughs> They hired John Leeson, presumably. <laughs> and write him out for an episode, just like they used to do in the TV show. And that, that's my favorite thing so far. Okay, next up is, of course, Special Topics Dalek. And uh, it 
falls upon me to provide the special topic this time around. And uh, my question to you guys is, has there ever been a moment when Doctor Who really scared you? Now, and the reason I say that is because, uh, again, of this behind-the-sofa oral history book I got, just about everyone talks about being terrified out of their mind by, by Doctor Who and having nightmares of it when they saw it when they were little kids. Now, now admittedly, I think when I, when I first saw Doctor Who, I was a kid, but I was like old enough not to think like Silurians were going to come through my window or something. I think it depends on what age you started watching right. it because i think in the uk it's firmly planted as a kid's show so i think kids started watching it much younger uh -huh. i know it terrified my son who started watching it when he was like three or four uh -huh. but for me i started watching it when i was 12 yeah there are images that stuck with me that i found striking or intense but uh, by, by 12 and growing up on american television i don't think there was much that was actually gonna freak me out and keep me awake at night that i can recall so I started watching the show, but somewhere between 8 and 10 years old, I don't mm -hmm. exactly remember. Um, I was raised in a Catholic family, mm -hmm. uh, not a particularly right-wing Catholic family or whatever. Where I don't have Catholic horror stories the way a lot of people do, but I was like deeply immersed in Catholic spirituality. Mm -hmm. So part of my growing up, I kept rubbing against things that w didn't quite jibe with Catholicism. One of the things I remember is, uh, do you guys remember the Superman miniseries, The Phantom Zone, where yeah, anybody read this but me, like all General Zod and the rest of these guys come out of the Phantom Zone and they wreak havoc on Earth. It was after Superman 2, but it was a different storyline. One of the things that happened in there, because they all exist as souls in the Phantom Zone, is that one of the Kryptonian friends of Kal-El sacrifices himself so that Superman can escape the Phantom Zone. But what that meant was that his soul was destroyed. So, like, the thing that made him a thing was gone. And I remember that being extremely spiritually disturbing to yeah. me. Mm -hmm. And I was getting this every now and then from Doctor Who, too. Yep. Pyramids of Mars was a strong one in that regard because it was a lot of the normal kind of Catholic make you feel good about, well, there's an afterlife and there's a point to things doesn't exist in Doctor Who. And that was really on the surface when you had things like Sutek, where, yeah. well, okay, the entire future can be destroyed. And the casual sadism of Oh, the guy comes out of the sarcophagus and just burns the shoulders. You know, Sutek's gift of death to all human <laughs> life. I do remember that not scaring yeah. me exactly, but really striking me. Just walk right out, kill the guy yeah, it, in, it, in it, that particular kind of way. It didn't induce terror, mm -hmm. like I hid behind the sofa, but it was extremely disturbing and unpleasant. And I remember specifically that after the first episode... Watching later episodes of Pyramids of Mars it was in the same room as like my grandparents. So I would turn down the volume as much as possible and get as close to the TV as possible and try to put my ear <laughs> against it so no one else in the room would hear. <laughs> that was the kind of weird kid I was. Go, what are you doing? Oh, no, I just want to hear it. You guys can talk. <laughs> yeah. So I remember that specifically about Pyramids of Mars. It's very strange. But yes, spiritual horror, I sure. guess. Okay. I can I, see that. Mm -hmm. I can do uh, that. Honestly, the... the the first time I can remember Doctor Who, this is kind of embarrassing, but the first time I really remember Doctor Who scaring me was as an adult when I watched Blink. The reveal of the Weeping Angels really freaked me out. Like, I can't remember exactly what 
the moment was, but someone turns around and suddenly, like, the angel's, like, inches from their face with, like, their mouth open and the fangs and everything. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't jump exactly, but I was like, jeez, you know, like, what do you, how do, how do you fight that? Oh, my God. So, yeah, I was, you know, 45 <laughs> or however old it was. And as a kid, nothing, I don't remember being scared exactly, but just being very struck by certain scenes. I think I mentioned, uh, Way back in our third podcast, and we talked about uh, Doctor Who and the Silurians, that my earliest memory of Doctor Who is the younger Silurian killing the older Silurian with the eye power and just saying, he wasn't fit to be leader, and just walking away. <laughs> and and being kind of like, whoa, <laughs> the, that, you know, just the cold-bloodedness of that. I think as a kid, a lot of that casual sadism is striking, mm-hmm. because I don't know what the rest of you were watching, but I was watching stuff on television. I didn't see mm-hmm. an R-rated movie until I was in high school. So yeah. um, Doctor Who was, in some ways, as cheesy as it could be, really harsh. It's odd. One of the things that I, didn't scare me, but I found distressing or caused anxiety was the soundtracks in Doctor Who, because that was unlike anything on American television and the weird electronica stuff when combined with some of the film images um, because in England it's always gray and I was really bleak. I'm thinking particularly of the scenes of the half transformed creatures from Inferno when they're running away and they've kind of got the weird eye makeup. They haven't turned into the werewolves that are are kind of cheesy yet but they're just kind of drooling at the mouth and they're running up the metal stairways and there's this weird stabbing electronic music and there's a lot of scenes all through that particularly 70s Doctor Who. Well I think a lot of 70s and 80s television music is to jazz you up to watch the program Mm -hmm. like oh it's magnum pi yeah (laughs) rockford (laughs) the wonder woman theme or something it's supposed to kind of get you hyped like this is exciting we're gonna watch it instead of this downbeat minor key droney what's going on Which brings us to our next round, Wonderful Afunctionalism. Now, when we finished recording our conversation about what scared us about Doctor Who when we were kids, the topic shifted to other weird things that scared the pants off us when we were kids. Unknown to us, Tony kept recording. There's an episode of, of all things, the Bill Bixby Incredible Hulk. Where Banner gets exposed to some gamma radiation, and he turns into sort of a half Hulk. He's Remember sort of gre- he's sort of greenish, and and and, and his face oh, is sort of brutish, and he he's kind of confused and all the time because he's kind of dumb but not totally oh, dumb. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know he has some strength, like he can tear a door off or something, mm-hmm. but not lift yeah. a car or mm-hmm. whatever. But and. And it, a lot of the the show was just him being sort of like, "What's going on?" And and that was kind of yeah. kind of weirdly creepy for given how how dumb that show well, actually again, that was. Part, that partial corruption, mm-hmm. like it's not full on Hulk that you can just sort of discount as, mm-hmm. "Oh, it's this mm-hmm. it's Lou Ferrigno as a Stanley's figure." No, this this Bill Bixby messed up. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I think it's Bill Bixby. Yeah, I think up. if I'd watched Doctor Who as a young kid, it would have terrified me because I was fairly sheltered by my parents. I I did not watch scary things at all. 
I mean, like, the yeah. shadow terrified mm-hmm. me, like, mm-hmm. as an elementary oh, yeah. school kid. Like, that sound, and he'd come on and laugh, and lights mm-hmm. out terrified mm-hmm. me beyond words, like the old radio show. So I'm sure... The, well, yeah, the things that, that scared did. me as a little kid were very odd. I mean, I did not grow up in a, in a particularly religious household at all, but any, like, old Warner Brothers cartoon where, like, a character dies and they went to hell... Mm-hmm. Sylvester's in hell and the devils are all like bulldogs. And they're like, oh, you've been a bad pussycat, haven't you? I was like really freaked out by but strangely that. excited. Sadly. <laughs> <laughs> TV had like a lot of these half-remembered things that spooked me. I think there was a Greatest American Hero episode where he was like in between <laughs> Sorry, dimensions yeah. or something. I know, right? Yeah. I, of all the... F- terrifying. But, yeah. But, I mean, not like terrifying, but like... Again, spiritually disturbing. Like, oh, he's fighting like something in a weird fourth dimension yeah. or Fantasy Island. Do you remember when Mr. Rourke went up well, against Fantasy the devil? Island terrified yeah. me. Yeah. There was a lot. I mean, late seventies, early eighties, very a lot of occult influence oh, in American yeah. TV. Yeah, popped up yeah. in a lot of weird All over places. It, oh, and novels, films, oh, yeah, and yeah, yeah. cult yeah, things. Yeah, like late really sixties, like yeah, yeah. 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 Rosemary's, Rosemary's Baby, Baby and from then on. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Then The Exorcist was such a huge influence. Exactly. Yep. That. Yeah, boy, if I'd seen The Exorcist when I was a kid. Oh, wow. I remember, yeah, I, I, I remember seeing the, the Exorcist as, you know, the first time I saw it, I was, you know, in adulthood, but mm-hmm. I was still like, man, people must not have been able to deal with this in 73 or whenever it was when it came mm-hmm. out. Yeah, such, a, such a great movie. Yeah, Do you guys nothing remember to compare at the, the, time. the Mr. Yeah. Yuck? Uh-huh. Yes. Those commercials. Mr. Yuck is green. Mr. Yuck is it mean. It terrified me as yeah. a small child. Like, Ooh. that commercial would come on, I would run out of the room. <laughs> I have vivid memories, and I did not go. I didn't, I wouldn't even open the cupboards below the sink. <laughs> wow. <laughs> like, it was an effective it poison really well. I was like, Mr. Yuck is under there. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> but again, it was the music. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Well, it, 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 it really is. evil, ominous. It, 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 it was very Halloween-y. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I was just like, ah. Of course, because your parents are trying to in, instill in you this is the way life works to a certain degree, and thing we're going to curate things that are safe for you to watch, and but they can't do that all the time. So you're inevitably going to be exposed. With, yep, you're going to step I, I outside that for a second. I don't even know what this is. I'm trying to process this. Yeah. I, I've never heard this sort of music before. I don't know what these, these images these are. Sounds, yeah, yeah, or or metaphysically, this is different from what I've mm-hmm. been told with mm-hmm. my religious upbringing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, that, that, that's that's an, that's a really great specific example of, of like a thing where you can tell how old someone is. Mr. Oh, yeah. Mr. Uh, Yuck. Yeah. <laughs> right, that's Mr. Yuck is Mr. Yuck is green. Yeah. Green. <laughs> yeah, like. I remember the stickers, but I don't think I ever saw the ad. Oh. So. Last thing, there was also <laughs> one of those same commercials to warn people. Do anyone remember this? Maybe it's just me. Mm-hmm about leaving your child unattended. It was the most horrific thing. It was on TV. It was like a mother who left like a dry cleaning bag or something, their kid unattended and came back in the room. They didn't really show the kid. The camera's really low, but you saw that the kid was like in a bag and it clearly like suffocated oh. to death. Am I... I, I, I don't recall that, but that sounds like a second thing. It was in the same vein as the Mr. Green. It, it, like, yeah. It, exactly right. I don't remember oh. it exactly, but that sounds so absolutely that. plausible yeah. for the 1970s. Yeah, yeah just be like... Wow. And you were so Damn terrified kid. for your children, <laughs> weren't you, Josh? I do remember like some commercial, and it was... Again, I think I was in adulthood when I... It was like 80s or maybe even early 90s, but it was just... It was like a an environmental awareness 
thing where like it's literally like it's like nighttime and the parents are going to the kids come on kids we got to get in the car now like what, what are we doing no come on get in the car and they, and, they, and the parents just like what what where are we going and the, the kids just they just drive the kids way out in the country and and it's like a garbage dump or something they just put the kids out they're like it's all yours now kids i do remember that <laughs> yep we're done good you deal with that and, and so it's the kids just standing in the Guys, we're just terrified by the uh, 70s. <laughs> <laughs> it was an unsettling time. Social mores were changing so rapidly. I don't, I don't think un- unreasonably so. <laughs> the lapels, my yeah. God. <laughs> Nightmare inducing. And now it's like all I choose to watch. Oh, yeah. Rockford Files now and Columbo. And and now. Yeah, yeah, now it's like, ah. Oh. I watched Night of the Living Dead again. Well, I saw that when I was you 12 years old. You see a lot of 70s era yeah. stuff, and, and, and it seems so much more progressive than a lot of stuff that's happening now in entertainment. Oh, in absolutely. And it was so loose, too. Like, yeah. you you could get movies made or television programs made, even though you know, you've been high on coke for 20 years. <laughs> and people would be like, yes, genius, do that sure. thing. Fantasy with- Island? Hell yeah. Does it have an orangutan in it? Do it. <laughs> I, I, did, I did hear some, and I, like... Progressive might be a generous <laughs> description. Well, say, well, the orangutan thought yeah. was progressive. <laughs> so, well, we'll say experimental. You know, they were they weren't afraid to try things. I, I, I did hear some anecdote about the creation of, of, of Fantasy Island, where it was like people like kicking around ideas for TV shows, and one of them one one guy just gets really disgusted and like, God, you know, it's terrible. All you want is some show where some guy gets all like all the liquor and broads he can possibly handle and, and like that's your idea of a great show and and they're like yeah that is a great show <laughs> and that was basically <laughs> all right we should go on it's getting really late all right for our next segment, The Randomizer. We're going to disable The Randomizer this time because we're still talking about The Brigadier. Now, of course, there are many, many Third Doctor stories uh, that star The Brigadier. And more so than a couple. More than a, more than a few. Uh, but by editorial fiat, we have decided to talk about Terror of the Autons yep. for a number yeah. of reasons. Uh, it's a good Brigadier showcase. Mm-hmm. It introduces Katie Manning as Joe, mm-hmm. Roger Delgado as the master, mm-hmm. and uh, Richard Franklin as Mike Yates. Mm-hmm. And it's got Benton and, uh, of course, the Third Doctor, so it's uh, one of the quintessential unit family stories. With so many introductions of so many characters, one of the things when I was watching this I tried to do was to really divorce myself as much as I could from the... 40 years of Doctor Who that followed. And it struck me immediately how ridiculous and absurd the Master's plan is from his very first appearance. He materializes in a carnival and picks a middle-aged carnival owner to (laughs) go break into a museum and help him steal an alien artifact. Of everyone on Earth that he could hypnotize. SWAT team members. um, And he researched... He researched yes. Luigi Rossini. He knew his real name was Lou he, Russell. He was, <laughs> Lou Russell was the middle-aged 
pot-bellied, cigar-chomping sidekick he needed for this caper. With the fake Italian <laughs> accent. It, it, you know, it's the sort of thing that clearly there's some sort of weird schoolboy rivalry between the master and the doctor where the master literally keeps going to where the doctor is. Just to dick with him. Just to dick with him. <laughs> you know, like, just, just, you know, just takes, like, the elements that are in 1971 or whatever. Yeah. It, it, you know, and I'm going to conquer the world with just what's laying around. <laughs> you know, you know, oh, there's a Nestine here. Yeah, yeah. Circus is in town? I got this. Yeah. <laughs> At the same time, I, I think how intriguing of an image, if you haven't been used to other Time Lords and things, of, of that horse box materializing and making that TARDIS sound. If you didn't know this was the first appearance of the Master and all this stuff, like, ooh. Yeah. What's going on? Yeah, that sounds like the TARDIS, but slightly more sinister. Yeah. And and the same TARDIS sound effect happens when the ridiculously stereotypical Britishman Time Lord just shows up for no reason. <laughs> just, oh, by the way, the Master's here. What? <laughs> yeah, then, bye! And then he just goes. It's like, it, it's, it's a weird, weird moment, but in a way it kind of adds to the gravity of what's going on. Like, you know, the Master is enough of a concern that the Time Lord's feel they have to specifically warn the doctor about it. Yeah, we, we just dropped you off here. You're supposedly being punished, but you should be aware that... And, it, and it's only the, well, you know, if you don't count the monk, it's like only the second time you see Time Lords other than the doctor. Yeah, Because the they, they, the they first show up in the war games. And this clearly suggests how Robert Holmes is going to treat the Time Lords mm -hmm. in the future with Deadly Assassin. Mm -hmm. Like uh, wacky, and uh, <laughs> ar ar arbitrary, yeah, and satirical. Uh, but like, like literally, like the Time Lord, like this is how I'm going to fit into England. I'm going to wear a, a bowler and carry an umbrella around for no reason. Yeah, and even John Pertwee comments how ridiculous he looks. Yeah, in that outfit. So this, the very first appearance of the Master, uh, of course, Roger Delgado is great. I just totally mm -hmm. love Roger in everything he's done, and this is quintessential of the master he's almost never better than he is in terror of the autons yeah but poor mr farrell so he comes in and hypnotizes the young guy mm -hmm. he takes over his company that presumably he worked his entire life to try to uh make successful he kills his right hand man mcdermott and then kills his dad yeah. practically in front of his mother in a terrible way and then, uh, of course, is responsible for Farrell's death, too. Not to mention Luigi Rossini's death. <laughs> and that poor guy who's just coming down the radio telescope in the last episode oh. where the master's <laughs> throws him off to his death. And the scientists who get killed. I remember. Like, I Holy what... crap, he's killed he, he's just so just many people. So the... at, at the end, when John Pertwee is like, well, I kind of look forward to seeing him again. Yuck, yuck, yuck. Oh, no. You should look forward. <laughs> you should shoot him on sight. Like, God, he's a monster. Well, it's extremely and, dangerous. And again, the master doesn't seem to have any real motivation. It's like, I'm just going to destroy the earth because it's there. Well, isn't that motivation enough? <laughs> You're like, I'm going, I'm going to call the, the Nestine consciousness down and have the, the Autons kill everything. And then the third doctor just says like, well, you know, they might kill you too. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, do he? What? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that is the, 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 a total failure on yeah. the part of the script because yeah. he's been so awful for three and three yeah. quarters episodes. And then 
Pertwee's like, it, oh, you know, they're blah, 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 this. And all of a sudden, oh, no, I guess I got to flip these switches. <laughs> it, it, yeah. It, it works because just Roger Delgado is so charismatic as the master. He, he kind of makes this make sense. In as much as it makes any sense, it's because of that. It's, yeah. it's totally unconvincing on a narrative level, and it sets a very bad precedent because yeah. it just happens over and over again for and, the next several and, seasons. And Joe Grant is like an idiot. You know, you know. I mean, I mean, she, I'm not she, sure she's I not totally like every, everyone treats her terribly. The third doctor treats her horribly, and then she's like, "No, no, I'm a perfectly qualified agent." And then she breaks all orders to go spy on the master, and then like accidentally knocks something over. You know, oops, and then gets caught instantly. And well, she's clearly a ditz to a degree, but I think um, so. Okay, it's too bad you didn't study escapology. It, during your training. Actually, I did. Look, I'm out of my bonds. Mm-hmm. And uh, she's able to open the, the chest. Now, admit that, admittedly, the chest has a bomb in it, mm-hmm. so you don't <laughs> want to do that. But uh, but the script does establish her competency to a certain degree. Yeah, and it, it, it just had I this think, sort of clunky plot mechanics yeah. stuff early on. And we're but. supposed to feel... We're not supposed to sympathize with the doctor when he's being mean to her at the beginning. Yeah. Eventually, he's like, oh, okay, I think you'll be a great assistant. <laughs> well, like, I, I did love the moment that, like, you know, the doctor was like, oh, I will not deal with this assistant, blah, 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 you know, and the brigadier's like, well, okay, you, you should tell her that. Uh-huh. And he's yeah. like, oh, um, 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 um okay. <laughs> the little satisfied smirk on Nicholas Corky's It's one of the very rare happened. times when the brigadier gets one over on the doctor. There's uh, there's something about the 1970s that is dealing with gender politics in a way that's um, it's constantly evolving and mm-hmm. it's strange and it's often dif- uh, different from episode to episode, especially in a thing like Doctor Who, where well, okay, um, the script is trying to establish Joe as being competent in certain ways, but she's also a figure of fun. But then we're also supposed to sort of be making fun of the Doctor for his upper crust stiffness. So those things are always in a mix with one another and although from our perspective now joe looks kind of stupid yeah kind of of pathetic i don't i i I think she's supposed to be viewed with more affection and more respect than maybe it looks like now yeah i don't know if i'm articulating that right no i I get that on robert holmes part is to have her seem a little incompetent at first and then, like you said, she studied escapology, and she actually gets them out of the handcuffs. And, and we warm to her as the doctor does. Yeah, yeah okay. And, and we maybe realize some preconceptions we had about her as the doctor realizes them. Yeah. But you're right. I, I think we're supposed to think the doctor's being kind of a dink in those yeah. early scenes. I mean, it's it's great when she says, I'm your new assistant. And he just goes, oh, no. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it's implied pretty explicitly that Liz Shaw just left. Like, I'm not putting yeah. up with her crap anymore. So she and went back to Cambridge. Yeah. And she's like, yeah he just professor. Yeah. What the brigadier says, the Shaw just says you just need someone to hand you beakers. She's <laughs> like, I'm out of here. It's playing with these gender roles in a way that maybe... I, I don't want to say that we're that we're too serious about it right now, but there there was a more looseness with the idea of expanding gender roles in the early 1970s where people could kind of make fun of it mm. from multiple directions, and it doesn't seem on the face of it, offensive to women. Yeah. Um, well, and much worse, I think, is Tony. Roy Stewart, the Jamaican actor who plays Tony, the circus strong man. Oh, God. Uh, oh. He's the only black face in Doctor Who pretty much oh, I for, forgot about for years oh. because uh, he was also Toberman in mm-hmm. Tomb of the Cybermen. Yep. 
And uh, I looked this up. He was also uncredited as a Saracen in the Crusades. And I mentioned him a few weeks ago, actually, because he's in I, Claudius, yeah. in exactly the same sort of background role. Mm -hmm. I'm a big black guy mm -hmm. who is intimidating, mm -hmm. and I might break your arm or something like that. And th to me, that's far more unfortunate, because this is just yeah. sheer racial stereotyping here. Yeah. You I, barely I get a word. Blotted that I, out and I don't blame Robert Holmes for that. I don't think the script tells it's you just anything. Casting. It's just a strong yeah, it's like, Oh, it's, it's a big black man. Well, let's cast him as an intimidating brute. Who doesn't speak. Who doesn't talk. So, yeah, it's uh, egregious. I think... That moment and the fast turnaround of the master are the big uh, stumbling blocks in this story. Um, side of that, it, I have nothing but positive how they, to say. how they really establish the master as like the doctor's opposite. He's well dressed, but not flashily dressed. Mm -hmm. He's like sort of charming, as opposed to the third doctor being kind of abrupt with everyone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, they even do a nice mirror thing between two scenes mm -hmm. where there's a scene with the doctor where he says oh, the master vanity is his weakness and in the next scene the master says curiosity is his weakness talking about the <laughs> doctor and they just parallel those things really nicely uh, but the master is absolutely incapable of, a, of an audible finger snap in this did you notice like he keeps doing this finger snap and there's like no sound it's like come on <laughs> drop in a finger snap sound he's supposed to be like this badass who goes Every time he snaps his finger, it's I the very last notice. finger snap. I Go never, back. He, I never. He does it throughout that. the entire thing, like four finger snaps, and the first three are absolutely inaudible, and then the very last one he manages to make an actual snap you can hear. Well, I'm never going to see anything else now when I, <laughs> when like, I watch it. And, and, and just sort of um, random comment: What the heck was up with the weird, ugly doll? <laughs> oh yeah, would you buy that for your little girl? <laughs> Here's a product I think we will do quite well. Like, get that horrible, disgusting thing away from me. They like, even had to add in what I'm sure was a late script edition where um, Mrs. Farrell was like, oh, yeah, it's clearly not for children. Or somebody says that. Like, oh, there's a prototype that's like a, a I don't novelty know, gift. Novelty gift. Yeah. <laughs> because it's hideous. It's, it's so hideous. I, on the better side of the imagery, I love the big cartoon Autons with the yellow hats yes! and the Those jackets. Those are creepy. Especially, I love the one who wears his brim at such a rakish angle. <laughs> <laughs> it shadows like, his eye. Those guys are great. Daffodil, anyone? Yes. One thing I found out, apparently the working title for this story was The Spray of Death. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, Terror of Autons. Yeah, Terror of the Autons is much better. Yes. Maybe Terror of the Spray of Death. Terror might be better. Spray of the Autons. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Those daffodils are pretty horrible, actually. That I, I can see why I can see why parents got upset about this episode. It's not just the doll or the police, but mm -hmm. even the oh here I'm gonna smell this nice pretty flower. Flap! Oh, and I'm just gonna seal to death. your nose and mouth. Okay, okay. One of the dumbest deaths in Doctor Who is the guy being eaten by the inflatable chair. <laughs> he just slipped away. <laughs> it's so. It's like they have no idea how to even make that look like convincing. It's just <laughs> I oh, think it, oh, oh. <laughs> they sell it on the concept, which is horrific enough. And the final image that they linger on with the little chair over his face mm -hmm. is still kind of distressing. Just the idea that you would go to work one day and end up being killed by a chair. It's nineteen seventy stuff again, right? Everything's yeah. plastic, 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 plastic. Yeah, I, I guess that's that's kind of the heart of it. Is just like to make you afraid of. 
tons of things that you would have in your home. This story is like a comic book, though. There are so many mm-hmm. deaths and bits of action. It is just continual. The chase and fight sequence with the autons, with the cars. And then it's... I love how Mike gets in the car and just straight up drives that guy <laughs> off a cliff. Which was apparently an accident. Oh. The I... stuntman fell farther than he was supposed yeah, to. Yeah, yeah, he it's... wasn't actually supposed to hit the stuntman or something, but he actually hit the stuntman. Mike! But, like, the guy got up right away, so it was like, oh, we'll leave it in then. <laughs> it's fine. No one got hurt. <laughs> And that, that really pointless but fun scene where they're investigating the plastic factory offices and the doctor opens the safe. Yeah. There's just an auton in it who just shoots him and he closes it really quick and that's the end of the scene. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, that guy's still there at the end. Yeah. No, I suppose he disintegrates when yeah. the Nestine goes away. I, I didn't pick up on this when I was watching it, but when I read about it later, apparently Unit, th- this, this is really strange, Unit is using French vehicles. Well, they're a United Nations task force. Yeah, the driver's side is on the left-hand side. Interesting. Opposite of what a British vehicle would be, which is really odd. To you. Well, I mean, I would think it would be super confusing, like, to drive on the left-hand side of the road and suddenly have to... So before we leave our discussion of Terror of the Autons, I do want to single out to discuss that one particular scene where the random stuffed shirt comes in to give the brigadier mm-hmm. hell and he tries to pull rank and then the doctor outclasses him mm-hmm. like literally pulls rank in terms of class like uh, peter cushing would do in yep. an old hammer movie oh you know when i was uh, playing cards with tubby the other day lord whoever yeah. what is wrong sort of chap is creeping into your club tubby i said <laughs> and really just turns this guy into just this little yeah. Bit of slime. Yeah. So he is just yeah, really weirdly mean to this one random bureaucrat. Well, up. he's it, it. It's a really interesting and very Robert Holmesian scene because he it's it's satire because mm-hmm. it's exactly the kind of thing that I suppose happens among the British upper class all the time. I just oh, you're trying to pull rank. Well, no, this is who I know, and blah blah blah, and you're just a piece of garbage. So. This is exactly the sort of thing that made the more left-wing young fan and later professional writers like Paul Cornell hate John Pertwee's doctor because they thought that, oh, well, he's just It's he's so just clear that he's bourgeois. out of his ass. No, I agree with you, and I certainly agree with you in terms of this particular story mm-hmm. where there's enough established about who the doctor is and yeah. has been for a season, uh, even in the John Pertwee role as a, a not counterculture, but a, a, he's certainly not an establishment figure. Yeah. Although there's a hilarious part in Paul Mars' novel, Verdigree, if you remember this, where it's established that the doctor has a nice country retreat and a <laughs> yes. unit stipend, and he's generally, like, super bourgeois. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so that's the kind of satire that uh, that this lends itself to, although I think it's more nuanced here. So, but final thoughts on Terror of the Autons. Of course, it's one of my favorites. I love it, uh, even with all the problems, and there are, like all Doctor Who, significant problems. I think there are later episodes with the Master and, and, and Unit and all that that are a, a little better than this. Time Monster. <laughs> I do love a the Time Monster. Un, a, an underrated story. I agree. I'm with Calvin on this one. Time Monster high five. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I, I know we're three oddballs in that opinion, but no, I, I think Time Monster is an underrated story. But I love this one, too. Mm. The fact that the master was introduced in the story with such a horribly convoluted impractical plot it's just it is the template for every master plot for the next 40 plus years he knows he's coming to get the nesting does he load up on a bunch of 
plastic at all from somewhere in a more convenient place. No, I'm going to get involved in the dysfunctional family relationship of this small plastic factory. That's how I'm going to start this Auton invasion. It's just, none of it makes sense, but all of it is terribly entertaining. I love it. Like much of Doctor Who, improvised. <laughs> the spray of death. Now round five, Arcs of Infinity, where we once again return to the big finish box set Doom Coalition. Doom Coalition 2 featuring (laughs) the 8th Doctor, Paul McGann, and um, his companions, what's her name, and the other girl. Liv and Helen. (laughs) Liv and Helen. Liv and Helen, yeah. And this features four stories. We have Beachhead by Nicholas Briggs, Scenes from Her Life by John Dorney, the Gift by Mark Platt, and The Sonomancer by Matt Fitton. Or Fighton. I have I like no idea fightin'. how it's... Them are fighting words. Them are fighting That's words. That's how I choose to pronounce it. So guys, really quick, what's your favorite from this? Mine is The Gift. Mine is also The Gift. Mine is really close between The Gift and Scenes from Her Life. Mm. My favorite thing from the entire box set is probably the first um, two-thirds of The Gift. But then it has to sort of collapse into generic, all-powerful villain stuff that feeds into the story arc. Should we talk about the arc for people who might not have heard this? Uh, This follows on from the first Doom Coalition that introduces the villain The Eleven. And we talked about this some episodes ago. I'm assuming that the Doom Coalition itself, which has not yet been explained is something like the Legion of Supervillains, where we're getting a bunch of bad guys together who are going to be like, oh, we're a big threat to the Doctor. Because this arc introduces... God, what's her name? The Cordira? Cordira? Corlina? Corilla? Katarina? Okay, so it's some time lady with... Uh, yeah, who we, calls herself later the Sonomancer. Yeah, we really uh, did our research on this, you guys. <laughs> we just listened to this. And it's we some can't Doctor remember. Who nonsense, guys. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, Chattanooga. But, ch- <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's, it's the time lady Chattanooga. Uh, yeah. we'll, we'll just go with that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So anyway, she's introduced, and she uh, has has a has a fixation on the eleven, and so they're teaming up, and they're blah 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 blah. She has incredibly powerful psychic abilities, yes, um, which makes her more powerful than eleven, who's just crazy. Yeah. So there are four stories. The first one, Beachhead, actually doesn't really have anything mm-hmm. to do with the arc at all, and. Weirdly, that was one of my favorites. Uh, really? it's, it's by Nicholas Briggs, and it's very conventional. No, I know. I, I, I hear what you're saying. It's like, why would anyone like the beachhead? But, <laughs> um, but I, I liked the atmosphere of it. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's very basic and just straightforward. Yeah, it's a town yeah. that's washed away by a flood, and then there are Vord. I, th- I think that's a lot of it is just, of all the aliens to bring back, the Vord are, are an interesting choice. Yeah, it's... It's curious because in the in the novels, the Vord had come back at least once that mm-hmm. I know of in Paul Carnell's um, No Future. Mm-hmm. They come back in No Future. They're, they're used no, in... those are the Vardens. Oh, I don't remember. You they, guys. They are, they are, they're they're used a lot yeah. in, in, in the recent comic books. 
Right. The board come back. Oh, and Grant Morrison at one point in one of his comics postulated that they were early iterations of the Cybermen. Mm-hmm. So, okay, deep nerd, you guys. Uh, that's But anyway, so the Vord are essentially a joke in Doctor Who fandom. Yeah. And they've always been a joke since their first and only appearance in the televised series in the first Doctor the story, The Marinus. Keys of Marinus. Yeah. Um, so here they're trying to rejuvenate them a little bit. They successfully make them normal-ish Doctor Who alien yeah. villains. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah, that's what disappointed me. It seems like uh, it's a great opportunity to go in and give them a little backstory or add to them. That's some of the fun of bringing these old one-off monsters back in audio form is to add something. And Nicholas Briggs adds absolutely nothing. This is them. not like Lawrence Miles bringing the Crotons back. Yeah, and which is amazing. Bodies. Yeah, it, it was a cozy, simple story, but it, it just... It turned me off. I honestly listened to this, and, and I found it so dull that I, it, there was like a two- or three-week gap before I even got back to another story, um, just because it was so bog-standard. Yeah, I kind of liked it for being an absolutely rote Doctor Who story, and I kind of disliked it for being an absolutely rote Doctor Who story. It's like... Yeah, yeah for me, I, yeah. I, I found myself weirdly affectionate toward it. Uh, mm-hmm. Partly, again, I think, because of the atmosphere, there were lots of, it, it's just raining, and there's a flood, and it, it felt very much like that for mm-hmm. me. And also, there was there was a thing I couldn't quite articulate until I listened to more of Doom Coalition 2, which is that this whole set, and Beachhead in particular, are very, very woman-heavy. That is interesting. That is an all-female cast other than the Doctor, essentially. Yeah, there's there, some small, there, minor male characters. Yeah, it, toward the very end of Beachhead, there's a male Vord who comes in and a couple soldiers, yeah. like snipers. But otherwise, it's almost entirely women. Yeah, that didn't even really register on me until just now. Yeah, and it's not that yeah. they make any big deal out of it. No, it's just that, oh, well, here's a bunch of... Uh, it's just unusual hearing a story of this length that is almost entirely women. And, and driven by women's voices, literally by women's voices. And that is the case for most of Doom Coalition 2. Most of the main characters are women. I don't think that was a point, exactly. Mm-hmm. There's just you have two uh, woman companions. You have River Song coming in again in the final mm-hmm. story. And uh, the new main villain that you introduce as a woman. Yeah, um, the Gift had such eccentric, interesting characters. Yeah. For a while, I thought, like... Oh, did they get Nicola Bryant? That that what that it one actor sounds so, so much, much like Nicola yeah. Bryant. It's just how the English do American accents. Yeah, American, American young girl yeah. accents, I guess. I don't know, but I I was expecting some weird reveal where it was like Perry who like fell through a time vortex and was in nineteen oh six. The idea that the Doctor was revisiting where he regenerated earlier in the timeline was yeah. kind of nice, and it gave him a little sort of existential angst. Um, about whether uh, he was going to die here yeah. and change the timeline before he regenerated. <laughs> yeah. So the the gift really appealed to me for uh, a number of reasons. I thought it was the best story of the four, but also because it was just shot full of opera nerdery. Mm-hmm. So they're in 1906. They talk about. I was disappointed that we didn't actually get to see Caruso. See, they talk about I Caruso thought, being in town. Oh, that's such a missed opportunity. We should have done it. Uh, and they talk about, um, of course, that our main actor guy is performing in King Lear, um, and then the opera is in town. That's what's getting all uh, all of the audience away from King Lear. But when the Doctor exits the TARDIS, and there's been this motif, and I use that word deliberately of 
the music of the spheres uh -huh. that's being heard and is being distorted in um, the different stories that were uh, that are in Doom Coalition Two. He hears what he calls the Tristan chord, uh -huh. and the Tristan chord. If you're an opera guy, this is very, very famous. It's the chord from Richard Wagner's Tristan and Isolde that start that uh, occurs in um, the opening phrase of the opera. And I, I, I'm not a, so much of a musicologist that I can explain this in any detail, uh, but I will play it for you. <laughs> This is like the most important piece of music of the 19th century uh, because it, it wants to resolve to a certain other harmonic area. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it doesn't. And it just keeps not resolving for the five hours of the opera <laughs> that is all about the sexual tension between Tristan and Isolde and only resolves, spoiler, with the death of them both in the love death thing and okay wow it's just crazy you guys mm -hmm. uh but anyway the tristan chord it's there and so the doctor comes out of the tardis and he's like wow this it, it's a clear sign that something's wrong yeah something is not harmonically correct in the gift and so that that nerded me yeah, yeah. i liked that i love the sound of the coins shooting out of mm -hmm. the guy's sleeves. Yeah. I, I mean, it's kind of hokey, but for the audio, it really worked well. God, the Hispanic accent. Oh, God. Yeah, you... you that it, was so... Like, accents are like the yeah. equivalent of special effects in the TV show. Right. Audios. You've just got to forgive the accents, especially <laughs> if they're American. you just got to gloss right over that. From the Sonomancer, I liked Rustum's weird capitalist Caribbean bear alien <laughs> accent. I don't know who the actor is, and if he actually is... West Indian, but... It, I, I like the cool. bear alien. Yeah, and he's villainous, but not psychopathic or megalomaniac. Self-interested, yeah. maybe. And it's making yeah. a satirical point where he keeps repeatedly saying he's not a killer or murderer, but right. his practices do all this damage. But you have this inherent problem with introducing River, and I think it's really disappointing she never meets the Doctor because yeah. she can't. Yeah. They've done the same thing already once in the River box set where they don't meet they actually interact over an, a distorted intercom but it's not a selling point it makes it makes sense but on the other hand it just it's like well why is is river even there in a way you know it's it's like is it just to sell more box sets it works okay on its own merits yeah. but um yeah yeah i feel like this whole box set issue that big finish is having because honestly the standalone stories in their main range are way better there have been a series of four with peter davis and there are some of my favorites uh, that have just recently been released it seems like they're taking more chances uh with the old 80s doctors than in these box sets that maybe are aimed at new series fans yeah. the arc is so generic and each episode becomes so beholden to this arc that it, it stops it from going somewhere really eccentric because i think if yeah. the gift had not been attached to this arc i think mark platt would have done something a lot more Bizarre would have had a lot more payoff on the themes he was developing. Well, I yeah, I agree. I I've liked these. I mean, broadly speaking, I like Doom Coalition and Doom Coalition Two, but I'm struggling to say very much about them because 
So I think I think Big Finish is quite adept at expositing while keeping the action mm -hmm. going. Like we're going to explain this thing while we're also running around and advancing the plot to a degree. They but know how to do audio. They can they certainly by this time they can totally do it. But fifty some minutes of television can accomplish a lot more than fifty some minutes of audio. So mm -hmm. if you compare this to an episode of the new series, there's just so much going on in any random Russell Davies or Stephen Moffat episode compared to this. It, they seem very empty. They seem devoid of incident. It's one of the reasons and, I really liked Scenes from Her Life, because I thought mm -hmm. using the flashback format felt like that yep. thing was really packed, and it, it, it was sort of propulsive, and it felt kind of like it stood alone. You could have wrapped that up if it wasn't part of the story arc and had a lot of surprise moments in it. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit surprised that I didn't like it better, mm -hmm. and maybe that's just a personal thing, but uh, because it does hit a lot of those boxes that I think Big Finish is good at, I think that the audios are best where there's a lot of, um, well, good writing in the first place. Good writing is really, mm -hmm. really important to mm -hmm. Big Finish stuff. And something like the Sonomancer had very, like, unusually bad dialogue. Long yeah. live the Sonomancer. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, so good writing, a lot of humor and surprise is very important to these things. And I think they're at their best when there's a mystery to be unraveled over the course of it, because in some way the exposition then is the action. Mm -hmm. And that was the case with scenes from her life, and it's the case with, uh, of course, most of Rob Sherman's stuff, uh, mm -hmm. uh, Chimes at Midnight. Yeah. But the uh, gift has that, too, where you're like, what's yeah. going on in this thing? Because I love Doctor Who, I like listening mm -hmm. to these. But it's not that I feel like I have a great deal to say about these on the podcast. This yeah. is so disappointing, listeners. I'm sorry. But... <laughs> we can't love everything about Doctor Who. They're just fine. They're no. just fine. <laughs> yeah, and I, I was just... I really wanted to see the Eleven do more. I really like the Eleven as a concept, and he just seems to be kind of just there to be thrown away. <laughs> and it might be a problem. I think they're trying to do the tease people out what this Doom Coalition is. We made some jokes about... We don't know what it is, but I think that is a problem when you make it so arc-heavy, yet you're not really revealing what the arc is yeah. it doesn't give you any anticipation for the next yeah set. the doom coalition is going to be the 11 in chattanooga and some other villainous <laughs> like just getting the together ronnie. the ronnie maybe yeah mm -hmm. yep. just getting together and and playing doom on an old school <laughs> network see that's the kind of thinking the kind of stories they need and this, this, this whole this get whole Skagra in there. Skagra. this whole thing is just an excuse to get them together to like play some mid-90s so that's it you guys so for our next episode we'll be recording live at console room in minneapolis the doctor who convention we uh did a show last year and we're going to be there again and uh, we don't know what we're doing yet, but uh, you're going to love it. You, you guys are you're going to love it, you guys. But until then, I'm Pat. I'm Joshua. And I'm Kelvin. And we're saying, get off my world. <laughs> this whole thing is just an excuse to get them together to like play some mid-90s era video games. I want the BFG. No, no, that's fine. <laughs> Wouldn't that be a nice pro-social pro way to resolve this issue? Let's play some Doom. Let's play some Doom Deathmatch or something. I prefer Halo. Yeah, Halo Deathmatch is, is fun. 
I, I'm very fond of Unreal Tournament myself. Oh, sure. For, for, for just blowing shit up for no good reason. Yeah, yeah I'm fine of blowing shit up for no good reason. Yep. I'm going home. Speaking of... <laughs>